0: welcome to the top order podcast coming to you from all four corners of auckland this evening we're going to talk england summer recap the new zealand versus australia series in northern queensland positives and negatives new zealand contracts the mumbai indians and the new zealand a tour of india as well as the white ferns all coming up on the top order podcast stay tuned Well, boys, starting in the mother country, the series has just, or well, season has just finished, I guess, with the end of the, uh, I think, Royal London Cup final. Um, the county championship still to be decided, but the talking point from England, really, is six Test match wins out of seven for the home side after just one win in 17. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have my say on this, but as the neutrals looking into the uh the summer i guess with the exception of that new zealand part of the summer uh, for stew and raj what are your thoughts on you know was the press all warranted was it all a bit of a, a a ruse by the english press what are your thoughts on what's been a pretty successful summer for the ecb
1: yeah well i guess for me i'm actually a little bit jealous i'll give you that i'm a little bit jealous i love the new outlook on on test cricket uh a little bit a little bit aggressive uh, it reminds me a lot, uh, interestingly or uh, coincidentally, of uh, when Brendan McCullum was in charge of, of New Zealand. Uh, I just like the way that uh, England has played their Test cricket uh, this this year. And I guess the, the people that probably make that the most obvious to me are the way that Ollie Pope and, and Johnny Bairstow have played. Uh, the way they've batted throughout this uh, summer has... Has just been night and day, chalk and cheese from from the last few few seasons. So those are the main sort of sort of takeaways from me. I guess there are a few other things to talk about around the bowling, around the leadership. Uh, but but yeah, from an initial point of view, that's where I'll, I'll say I love the way that the England team are batting this season.
2: Picking up from what you said around um, you know feeling like McCullum, I actually. Feel- I, I mean, he's, t- this is, this is a step up of, of what, um, what New Zealand ever did. I, I think, um, I can remember a couple of tests where it did sort of feel like, you know, we, we were up the ante that much, but it really feels like, like McCullum, the fact that England was at rock bottom or whatever McCullum said, you know, when he came into the job, it kind of, uh, allowed him to just go, okay, well, this is, we're just going to go all out and, um, you know, like like we've talked about the whole time, I don't think it's all McCullum. There's been a lot of, um, you know, positivity about Stokes's leadership and the way he's kind of brought the sides together. But, yeah, definitely feels like, uh, you know, this is even a step above. And, and uh, you know, we saw that little hiccup against South Africa in that first test. But I think the most positive thing, I mean, Binksy, you can jump in here and, and uh, talk about it afterwards, but I would say, if I was looking at it from an England point of view, the, the most positive thing is that they had that little hiccup and they bounced back really, really positively and basically just you know dealt to, dealt to South Africa in those next two games.
0: Yeah, look, a- absolutely. I, I do want to come to Baldy. and I, I know England cricket fans and Australian cricket fans sometimes accused of not really staying in the moment. We've got a T20 World Cup uh, starting in three or four weeks' time. Already thoughts have turned, I think, to that Ashes tour. You know, it, it seems to be the sort of building of, of both the English and the Australian cadence in terms of their test match cricket. Baldy, I guess pre-going into this English summer and now post, have your views changed on the betting odds for the Ashes series next English English summer?
3: I think I might be different, uh, different than most punters because I had a lot of Uh, belief in this England squad going into the summer not just at the at the back end so I might have been wearing the the Elton John Rose tinted glasses all summer long to be fair but I do think that England have shortened with the bookmakers for sure in terms of their Uh, outlook coming into the next Ashes series. Look, they're going to play attractive and attacking cricket. And if you're a neutral fan, or even if you're an Australian or England fan, that's what you want from an Ashes series. You want excitement. You want a contest. You want players going at each other and you want them to be bringing their best. So I think it just looks like a fantastic Ashes series coming up. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because there's lots of water and and white ball cricket to go under the bridges before we get there. But it does shape like a pretty exciting Ashes series. Australia going to England uh, June next year in in england are going to be in red hot form by the look of it
0: yeah there's a long winter ahead for england and look i am going to bask i suppose a little bit in the positivity of it i know you guys always give me grief for probably being a little bit negative so i've got to say there's a lot of pluses that have come out of this summer i think the the carefree manner in which the team have been allowed to go out and play their cricket i think it's a big plus for me seeing ollie robinson come back in um, and he's gone away and he's got, you know, pretty lean and mean and um, speeds have been up throughout the course of the summer. He's been, you know, he's not expressed. I don't think he ever is going to be expressed, but I certainly think he can get himself to that kind of Josh Hazelwood sort of nasty sort of 85 uh, mile an hour pace and that kind of relentless accuracy. That he's got one of the things i picked up on is that um his i guess ability to work with anderson and broad throughout the summer has paid dividends he actually credited them and said you know i didn't know how to bowl this wobble seam i've had a couple of weeks with jimmy and broadie man you know if you can learn a skill like that in two weeks you know it says a little bit about your natural ability so really really pleased with him and then we've got you know the likes of Jofra archer and mark wood to hopefully hopefully come back into the reckoning at some point Probably, you know, I don't think they're going to play this winter or the first half of the winter for sure in Pakistan. Um, Although, you know, you never you never know. Um, But yeah, probably a more realistic target might be that New Zealand tour in in February and March. And then look, whilst there's still some questions about the batting lineup and, you know, I don't think that's ever going to go away until they've got the whole lineup firing at some point. uh, It's been really, really good to see the intent in which they've they've played. The negative piece for me is, number one, if I was a cricket fan, I don't think I'd ever be buying a ticket for day four of an England test match at the moment because you're definitely not going to get value for money. But I also think that you know this style has worked really well in terms of the way they've aggressively gone out and won games you know, relatively quickly over the course of the summer. I just wonder how that does translate to... Um, potentially better pitches and and pitches that you know are going to be a contest for four or five days and I think you know Australia is a great example of that you know your wickets are normally pretty flat you've got to be able to really as a batting side put bowling sides under pressure getting them into their second and third and fourth spells Um, and as a bowling team also obviously front up when um, you know someone like Usman Khawaj is uh, batting so serenely as he is at the moment so there is a little bit of a caveat but Man, i think i've got to just enjoy these next uh three or four weeks until we start that you know pakistan series in earnest and the wheels might come off but for now yeah it's great being an english test cricket fan i think
1: one of the uh one of the biggest things for me from a from a bowling perspective is the development of, of those two and they've also bowled this entire summer i believe without wood or, or, or wood or archer but the use of Jack Leach has been completely different as well from from last year and the, you know previous seasons. What do you make, Stu, of of uh, Jack Leach's usage during this summer?
2: Well, you're spot on. I think that um, you know we've seen it, and it, you know I think when we talked about the New Zealand summer or the New Zealand series when they were over there, the contrast in how our spinners were used compared to how Leach is being used by Stokes is is huge. Leach, Leach is being used as in mo- for the most part, he's being used at times when Stokes thinks he's going to come on and take a wicket. There, you know, there are still little patches where uh, he's, you know, having to come on and do a job. But for the most part, he's being brought on to take wickets, which I don't know. Speaking as a spinner, that's exactly what you want. And I mean, there, there might be an example of, uh, or you know, it might be a little bit the what Binksy was saying, basically about maybe better pitches, better situa- or better situations for batting i actually don't think the whole english summer was that terrible for batting and we might come on to that in a second but like i think that you know there, there are going to be times where you can't just you know he is going to have to play that role and maybe uh maybe pakistan or or pakistan's not a not a uh not a red ball tour is it i don't think but um yeah th- there are times when he's going to have to come in and, and do a different job but yeah absolutely it's it's been a, a huge contrast in the way they've been able to use him
1: and one of the other takeaways, I guess if I'm looking at this from a, a, a whole summer, holistic, from a summer perspective, there's been a little bit of a, a regression in terms of the white ball cricket. I mean, that's, you know, has been completely outstripped by how good they've gone with, with the red ball. But what do you make of a, a little bit of a white ball regression?
0: Yeah, look, I guess th- you're always going to have, I suppose not necessarily a regression, but a period where you need to rebuild a little bit when you're losing some of your key players. And I think um, none more so than Owen Morgan, you know, his form was under question for a period of time. Whether he's going to continue on after that World Cup was, you know, also potentially a question mark as well. So, so look, I think that that was always going to cause potentially some issues. Josh Butler made a comment after his first few games. I'm still learning how to be a captain which, you know, is a pretty honest assessment, you know, that you wouldn't normally sort of go out with that much um, that much openness to the press and say, you know what, I'm learning on the job as my, uh, you know, my international captain. But I think also they're very, very good at building for the tournaments and, and, and perhaps not letting the results really affect them too much when the process is the most important thing for them as they lead into those big tournaments. So I think the test is really going to be this T20 World Cup for this uh, for this white ball side, and then how they build. Um, and look, I think again, really telling that they've made a couple of personnel changes for this T20 World Cup as well. Alex Hales, you know, we've talked about him a hell of a lot on the podcast. Um, back in the squad, the right horse for the right course, in in my opinion, he's got a fantastic record in the Big Bash. So it, it would have been, I think, really really strange that he didn't make that plane after um, after the injury to Johnny Bairstow. So. I'm not massively worried about that white ball form with the exception of the fact that we are probably missing, you know, definitively one of those wood or archers. And, um, you know, wood is back to fitness almost, I believe. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll see whether or not he makes it um, you know, through what will be a pretty grueling tournament because um, that's going to be the, the X factor difference that England will miss from that attack if they can't get someone at 90 mile an hour into that white ball side regularly.
2: Can can I um just bring it back and maybe Baldy because uh, you've done a bit of analysis on um you know historic, uh you know batting averages and all these kind of things. I, I'm am really confused. Like it seems like this whole English summer and um you know it, it's sort of uh, same thing kind of happened in the um, Australia New Zealand white ball series that we've just seen these ODI's. It seems like as soon as the ball is swinging, moving around, batters just can't bat anymore. I, I, like, is this is what what is going on here? Is this something that, um, you know, we can expect going forward? Is this an an idea that, um, you know, we tu that Raj touched on? You know, after that first South Africa Test win, that South Africa just, uh, you know, their batting frailties are. are the fact that when it's moving around, they can't bat or, you know, what what is going on here? Is there a precedent for this? Is this um, something we should expect going forward? Are we ever going to see a, a four day test in uh, you know, England and, and New Zealand and places like that ever again?
3: Well, Stu, my answer is really going to depend on with, on whether or not I'm allowed to put my analyst hat on or I need to put a tinfoil hat on and go full conspiracy theory? Because I think the answer really does depend on on whether or not you buy into the theory that T20 cricket and white ball cricket and white ball cricket preparation is killing red ball cricket preparation. So from a point of view where there's fewer warm up games now there's fewer red ball games for test cricketers to be playing all their preparation is centered around effectively around white ball cricket around sea ball hit ball right so does that prepare you well from a perspective of being able to grind out an in innings being able to defend against a swinging red ball etc my view is that it's easier to adapt to I'm playing with a white ball or I'm bowling with a white ball that doesn't swing very much to bowling with a red ball suddenly that has a bit of movement About it. Easier for a bowler to adapt to that than potentially a batter. And of course, bowlers have more opportunities to make mistakes and to hone their craft and get it right on the field. Batters in all likelihood only get one chance. So unless you're a red ball specialist, and even if you are, there's less county cricket or less first class cricket directly in preparation for test matches, you really have fewer opportunities now to ready yourself in the right mindset physically and mentally to play long innings. So I think that's what we're really seeing is when batters are in and they've got their eye in and they're seeing the ball really well, you're seeing a batter make big scores very, very quickly. Johnny Bairstow, fantastic example, summer 2022 in England. When he was in, he was unstoppable. However, early in his innings early in everybody's innings, everyone's a little bit vulnerable. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a little bit of a, a feast and famine type situation where players get in, they make big scores and they snick off early. There's nothing really new to that, but I think you're going to see the difference between those two things happening across a whole team, maybe being a little bit more accentuated because of the difference in preparation that you get uh, between you know, what we had 20 to 25 years ago in terms of our Sheffield Shield, our our county preparation and what we've got now going into an Ashes series where there's possibly less of that.
0: Yeah, Bordy, I think you're you're spot on there. And I think the preparation factor is really key. You know, the Indian team that came and, yes, they're only playing one test match, barely had any Red Bull cricket leading into that, almost straight into a test match. New Zealand really didn't have much of a tune-up and, um, South Africa decided, I think, in their 11 days off to go and play golf and go go-karting uh, before the second and third test. So, um, look, m- maybe their lap times improved, but um, y- yeah, but probably watching the wrong, uh, the wrong Netflix documentaries in the lead up to that um, test series. Let's turn our attentions. We mentioned one leader retiring in Owen Morgan earlier this summer. We've had a more recent announcement over the course of the last 10 days or so. Uh, very, very well revered leader of the Australian white ball team, particularly in a bit of a period of turmoil after uh, Sandpaper Gate, Aaron Finch has, has hung up the, the big bats. Um, and he's gone out with a bit of a bang from a serious perspective with the Chapel Hadley trophy board. You must have been stoked to see some cricket in northern Queensland and even more stoked with the results potentially.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fantastic uh, ending for Aaron Finch's captaincy career from a an ODI perspective um, and great timing from him too. We'll talk about the, the mouse and the tactics of that retirement because what he's effectively done is he's retired from white ball cricket from an ODI point of view, but he's not retiring from T20 cricket until after the T20 world cup. And with only six to eight weeks to go, it might even be less to the start of that tournament. He's effectively locked himself into captaining and captaining Australia through the T20 world cup, and then maybe retiring afterwards. So, He's really nailed the timing of that retirement quite nicely, Aaron Finch. I think if he tried to hold on to that white ball job a little bit longer, Australian cricket might have gone, hey, listen, we probably need to move in another direction here, and we might do that bang-bang at the same time, ODIs and T20s. But now that he's stepped down from the ODI side, T20 World Cup around the corner, I think he's going to hold on to his job through that T20 World Cup. So that'll make it interesting for Australia because they've got some guys banging down the door to 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 work their way into that uh, T20 side for the World Cup. So there's going to be, you know, maybe one too many players that Australia would like to have in their T20 side in that batting unit in the top seven. Um that they're not going to be able to fit in there. So it's going to be interesting to see. Does Steve Smith miss out? Does Tim David make it into the side? If he does, who makes way? Who opens the batting? If it's not going to be Finch, then who? Is it Wade? Is it Stoinis? So there's all these little questions starting to emerge from a side that, you know, four months ago looked pretty settled from a T20 point of view. That World Cup preparation is starting to turn a little bit for Australia. Um, and, you know, of course, this time, what was it, barely 12 months ago, we were talking about how poor the prep was and Australia came together at the last moment. We've had a pretty good lead up in terms of our results this year in terms of white ball cricket. And there's just some of these little questions, these nagging questions that are, that are dogging Australia. And there's a couple of injuries as well. It must be said, you know, Stoinis uh, picked up an injury. I think there's a couple of others as well that are, are fighting to make themselves fit for this T20 World Cup. Let's talk about the, the Australia-New Zealand series from an Australia perspective Australia are finding ways to win cricket games against against good opposition, which is which is good from an Australian point of view. We talked about last year Australia having a really disrupted build-up to the World Cup, but from an Australian point of view, this time around, we've got the depth. We kind of know who's in our T20 team. There's a few question marks, but we'll I think we'll figure that out. The thing that really makes me uh, positive and optimistic from an Australian point of view is the fact that we played – not our best cricket against Zimbabwe, and hey, we got beat. That's that's fair enough, and that's great for Zimbabwe. And it shows that if you're not at the top of your game in either white ball format, you can get beat, and you can get beat by anyone. So that's a great outcome from a world, world cricket point of view. But what I liked for Australia is that we didn't play our best cricket against New Zealand. We got ourselves in a hole 50 for 4, 50 for 5, 50 for 5, whatever those three kind of scores were, but we found a way through partnerships – lower in the order working our way towards competitive totals and we kind of did to new zealand what new zealand do to most international teams find a way to get competitive get in the game and then figure out where our strengths lie over the course of the game and win those key moments so that was a huge outcome for australia I'm going to turn it over to the New Zealand guys because it was obviously an, another disappointing outcome from you series-wise. Is that an unexpected outcome from a T20 or a white ball perspective? Or were you going into that series expecting to be up against it against Australia, even in even in North Queensland?
1: Uh, it wasn't unexpected in terms of, of the result. I think, unfortunately, you're, you're conditioned now to think that you're going to lose when you play Australia, unfortunately, uh, as, a, as a New Zealander in cricket. Uh, not rugby, but cricket. Um, and I just... I, I am disappointed with the fact that a lot of those ODIs, we got ourselves in positions where we really should have closed that game out. Uh, that first ODI actually reminded me very much of the 2003 World Cup, where we had Shane Bond ripping through the Australians and, and had an incredible Andy Bickle galloping home at the end to set a, set a total for New Zealand to chase, which they couldn't get to. But... Um, and the second one where we had them five for 50-odd and they managed to get to 200. And then the third one, I thought we were actually in that game all the way till the end until Phillips got out. I thought we were going to win that game. Uh, it was really quite unfortunate uh, to lose in that way. Uh, just before we move on to, to Stu, I have a question for you, uh, Baldy. Glenn Maxwell and his role within this side, for me... I, I don't know if he's confused, but I'm confused about what his role is. He's bowling a lot. He's batting at eight sometimes. Uh you know, we know he's a top order batsman. Uh what 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 mm. is going on? What's going on there?
3: You know what? I like it. I like I like Maxwell at seven, and I'll tell you for why. If Maxwell bats at seven, he bats in the last fifteen overs, and that becomes for him the last fifteen overs of a T twenty. So if you think about where you would want Glenn Maxwell batting in a T twenty, you want him batting for 12 to 15 overs, the last 12 to 15 overs of a T20 where he can manipulate you know, the field, he can do all these Glenn Maxwell things and he's got quite a defined role. I kind of like him at seven for Australia uh, because he can come in in most match situations in that kind of mode. And I think what you'll find is that Glenn Maxwell, had Australia been 130 for three with 15 overs to go, Glenn Maxwell might've come in at five. And, and done that job for Australia from there. So I think what you'll find is Maxwell is not Australia's number seven, but he might be Australia's first-choice closer from, a, from an ODI point of view like he would be in the T20. The only difference is in T20s he's probably batting at four, and I like that for Maxwell in T20. So I think you'll find that's where his role will be. And as long as Glenn Maxwell has a defined role with a reasonably high level of responsibility – I think that's where Glenn Maxwell excels as a, as a white ball cricketer because he's got a really clear, focused mind. When he has to do all things and try all sorts of things, that's when he's clearing... Uh, his thinking becomes less clear on the cricket field and you see him try shots to balls that he shouldn't try shots to. So I really like that role for Glenn Maxwell. I mean, we can talk about Cameron green all day and you know, I'm buying anyone's Cameron green stock. I don't know if there's any left on the secondary market. I don't know what the IPO is going to be like on Cameron green, but if you can get Cameron green stock, get it uh, because this guy is as good as advertised, if not better. Um, just have a look at that that ODI innings. You know when he when he held it together with Alex Carey when Australia were on the ropes. You you have a look across that whole summer. There's growth in his batting and in his bowling and in his leadership. So there's lots to like. Now he's being talked about as a three format player in T20s as well. So I like that combination of Green and Maxwell in the lower innings for Australia that can. You know, Green can hold it together if he has to, and we've seen that. But he can also explode, and, and you know he can take wickets as well. So lots to like for Cameron Green fans, of which there are many.
2: Roger, I'm jumping in here now because I don't really want to answer this question myself. So I'm going to throw it to you because why can't we beat Australia? I just I honestly just don't understand anymore. I've tried to think about the series. I've tried to think about what's going. You know what was going on during these games. Like you just ran through all the things. We could have easily won all three of those ODIs. Uh, you know full credit to Cameron Green and Kerry and other people for Australia in that series that did step up at the right times but we should have won that series at least 2-1 in my opinion but why didn't we what what is going on here
1: look I think it's just the way that we approach games we approach games very differently uh if you look at the two teams we approach the games very differently australia have that we can win from any win any position attitude uh that that they they have done where we seem to get ourselves into good positions and we're like overthinking it how are we going to finish this off the best example is actually that that first odi where we've got them on the ropes chasing a total we should have bowled trent bowled out why did we bring on spin at a time where the ball was swinging and we could we could have probably nipped a couple out or could have finished that game off we were one or two wickets away from from bowling australia out for 50 or maybe not 50 but something very very little and we actually have to look at how we're approaching this psychologically because and and this hasn't been talked about as much as it, it should and it's probably a indication of where Cricket is especially from a one day perspective. Zimbabwe beat Australia and we didn't beat Australia. And it's quite, it's, it's, it's when we had Australia probably in a worse position than they did. Uh, So it does kind of dumbfound me, but I think it's more the mental approach. Uh, Does that answer your question? Yeah,
2: it does. It does. I, I've a little bit kind of want to push back on the captaincy and maybe, you know, maybe it's because I've sort of, you know, I've had those same challenges and I was sitting there thinking, you know, during at the time. And, and I actually think that the biggest barrier to Williamson's captaincy at that, in in both of those games, because I think if you look to the second game, he kind of did what everyone wanted him to do in that first game and it didn't work either. It wasn't like, Oh, okay, well, you know, if, if you do this, it always works. I think the biggest barrier is the fact that apart from Bolton Henry, and then Southey at times when he came into the, the side, we didn't really have a third, fourth, fifth bowler in that series. And, you know, Bolt was so amazing. And, it, and like, it just made everyone think we've got to make, it, uh, you know, we've got to make allowances for him to play at least white ball cricket whenever he's available to play for New Zealand. But, you know, I, I've... You've kept, you, people keep asking me on on this podcast. All of you have said, you know, are you starting to worry about Lockie Ferguson? And I keep saying, no, don't worry. He's going to come good. He just needs an extended run. But that wasn't a great series for him. It wasn't a great series for um, for Mitchell Santner. in terms of being a wicket taking option. I, I know that's not really ever been his role. But it, if if Lockie's not on as that wicket taking option, and we're going to go with sort of a fifth bowler. Then that's made up of Nisham and Bracewell and um, Mitchell Phillips, whoever you want to kind of piece together as those those part time fifth bowling options. Then Santner has to take wickets or a spinner has to take wickets, and we didn't have Sodhi on that what, um, this ODI ODI league of that tour. So yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that actually the the bowling side of that and not having bowlers that could come in and back up Trent Bolt and and what Matt Henry did was was a bigger challenge to the captaincy. Although, you know, I, I do agree with some of your points there.
1: I, I Sorry, just to jump in quickly before I hand over to Binksy. Uh, I don't think that those pitches are representative of what Australian pitches are going to be like at the T20 World Cup or even how they are generally. But you're right, Ferguson did go missing. Nesham, who was more of a golden arm kind of kind of bowler... He actually did a really good holding role, which was interesting to see uh, him in that role. But but you're 100% right, uh, Lippy. We were missing that little extra strike option for uh, for Williamson and co. Over to you, Maxi. Yeah, look,
0: first and foremost, I hope you're right about the wickets. Look, I guess it is um, playing in a slightly different centre for, for Australian cricket and slightly off-season as well. So, um, yeah, let's not read too much into that. Look, I wouldn't quite say I'm a neutral because I definitely dislike Australia more than I dislike New Zealand. But um, watching that series as as a neutral, I, I think you're dead right. It, it was a psychological thing. You could almost, you know, you could almost see the decision making cogs going round. And whether rightly or wrongly, when you've got a guy like Trent Bolt, when he's, he's got his tail up, you've got to take that, you know, that chance, that risk. we talked about Brendan McCullum earlier in the podcast, you know, it's almost like he needs a little wristband with, you know, what would Brendan do written on it? Because I think, you know, the answer then would have been, I'm going to try and nick out um, Kerry or Green here and then it's game over and, and and really put the foot on the throat. But I think there's that worry that that sort of fifth bowler being made up of the, you know, the guys that you mentioned, they're kind of thinking, well, what happens if Bolt doesn't get that, You know that wicket here we then have to go through a full allotment of nisham or um you know what if santner doesn't come off there's that kind of worry really around how you get in that mix of a fifth bowler and perhaps not playing that instinct and and i think that's probably one of my criticisms of one day cricket still 50 over cricket is it is almost more formulaic than t20 now t20 you've got to be able to react a lot more quickly because the game can swing in the space of you know 8 10 balls And ODIs, you still see teams go, right, the percentage play here is I'm going to stick a man out. I'm going to bring on my fifth bowler. I'm going to try and burgle four or five overs and we'll see how we go. Um, Whereas I think if you were taking that T20 mindset um, into that kind of one day cricket, New Zealand would have made some different decisions, I think, from a from a captaincy, uh, captaincy perspective. And
2: I think I think. I think you're spot on there, Binksy, around that uh, that T20 stuff and the, the ODI. And I think because we haven't really seen ODI cricket f- that much for, for a while, it was actually so apparent in that series that the differences between those two formats, because as you say, you, you can kind of burgle four overs out of a fifth bowler in a T20 game because going for 10 and over f- for those four bowlers is fine. It's actually you know if Nisham, um, you know Bracewell whoever comes on and goes for 40 off their four overs, that's great in a T20 game if they're your fifth bowler, in an ODI, if they're going for a, even a runner ball and they just can't they can't bowl any dots, they can't build any pressure, it's huge. and that's kind of what happened in that series and and when it relate, you know when it sort of relates in a bigger picture to the balance of the New Zealand side. There was no real way that we could pick a side that looked strong on a batting chart or strong on a bowling chart. And we either kind of had to go with, you know, that fifth bowler, we were made up of, of Nisham, all the guys we've just mentioned before, or we have to play Santner at seven. And playing Santner at seven looks like sort of half a spot too high for him at the moment in, in ODI cricket. So I think there are a lot of questions. They were hoping to kind of answer them with Bracewell. I don't think... That necessarily worked in that in that um, it certainly didn't look like it was going to work in the um, in this Australia series so yeah I think a lot of questions to answer in terms of the ODI series for New Zealand if we're thinking ahead to a year when we've got the the World Cup but as you say different pitches it's going to be in India there are a lot of differences about what we're going to be doing in in that series or in that tournament but yeah I think it really exposed that the balance is not quite right there for the ODI side at the moment.
3: I would dis- I would disagree to a point, Stu. I think the, the thing that I would add to that is, one, New Zealand played like they had a lot to lose in that series, and they got Australia into a position and then tried to protect the advantage that they had rather than drive at home. Australia played for three ODIs like they had nothing to lose because, really, they didn't. They had to go all out and then take a chance. The problem that I have with... The, the balance of the side conversation for New Zealand is if they all had all just performed a little bit better and done their job, then the balance of the side doesn't actually look as bad. Like if you think, okay, well, Michael Bracewell, did he do a job? Is he the right person to fit in the side? If the top five score runs then he has a little bit more freedom to to do his job. So I don't think necessarily the balance of the side is the cause of all the woes. But what it has highlighted is if the top five don't do their job, then a lot falls on 6, 7, and 8. And do they have the tools in their tool set to do what Kerry did, to do what Green did? And the challenge that you've got there is 6, 7, and 8 for New Zealand, predominantly T20 players, or their first preference would be T20 for Australia, the guys who got them out of the poo in the ODIs were Smith, primarily test and ODI player, Kerry, primarily test player, Green, primarily test player. They were able to bat a little bit of time and to take some time into the game rather than to try and force the issue from a batting point of view. So there are a couple of competing points of view that I've put forward there, but I think generally would New Zealand benefit from, you know, same side, a little bit better performance and then go, okay... All other things being equal, do we get the things that we need out of our team? Because I think at the moment what we're looking at, overall team performance, nobody really – did their job in that new zealand side to the standard that they would have set for themselves and therefore i think it's quite difficult to to point to whether or not balance alone is is the cause of the issue there i think they've got to give that another crack and just see if success on the field looks a little bit different if everyone kind of steps their game up five or ten percent more towards what they would expect from themselves
2: yeah i think that's fair i think it's probably um I guess from my point of view, I was hoping that maybe a few questions got answered in that series. And actually, I think it sort of threw yeah. up more questions because now we sort of the, the you know you mentioned the um, te- more test orientated players that came in and and performed well for Australia. Kane really struggled in that series, and and I think a lot of that is just down to not mm. having enough cricket. He really struggled to just get the ball off the off the square, build some pre or you know. Put the pressure back on the bowlers by rotating the strike and all that kind of stuff and actually for new zealand when they brought in their more OD, more t20 orientated players like finn allen and glenn phillips they added emphasis to our innings you know in that third game when they came in it was the two of them that looked most likely to kind of take the take the op, you know take put the pressure on the opposition and and yeah i don't know i think i guess i just sort of had hoped that some player it was going to become clearer what our number number one uh 11 for New Zealand and the ODIs is and I think it's become even more murky because I don't know how you fit all those guys in I don't know what you know in in a year's time how is the Martin Guptill Finn Allen kind of balance going to look at at this stage you would probably bet that Finn Allen's going to be the one that maybe usurps Guptill Does, does that mean Guptill's got a spot Is Conway going to go back to the middle order? Where does Phillips fit in? Where does Nishan fit in? Mitchell, there are loads and loads of questions now that I think probably before that series, having just come off the West Indies series, we're thinking we've got a lot of depth there and it just didn't go right. You're right, it's only three ODIs, but yeah, a lot of sort of murkiness now, whereas I'm not sure I had that before that series.
0: Lippy, that's an excellent segue into the next section of the podcast. So you mentioned... James Neesham there. There's a couple of things we want to unpick. So number one is Jimmy Neesham has turned down um, a second offer of, uh, well, I say a second offer, uh, an offer, I guess the second granting of central contracts after a couple of injuries to key players for New Zealand cricket. And then we've also seen, I guess we've been predicting this, Nostradamus Baldwin over there, I, I think was the first to pick up on this, which was... Um, The emergence of these sort of multifaceted T20 franchises, the Mumbai Indians reach extending with Boucher, Shane Bond named as coaches and and an intention to share players and playing styles around the different franchises. Let's start, though, with the New Zealand contract. So I think it's over to probably Raj for for your thoughts on, I guess, was Nishan right to turn down this contract at the second uh, second sort of time round?
1: So I guess just to paint the picture for anyone who's uh, been under a, a rock for the last three, four months. So Trent Bolt turns down his New Zealand contract after being awarded it. Uh, Colin de Grandhomme takes up a contract in the BBL before <laughs> before actually getting his uh, New Zealand contract uh, terminated or returned to sender. And then Jimmy Neesham, who originally did not get a contract, who which surprised a lot of us knowing how much white ball cricket was coming up uh, didn't actually fall into the criteria or fall into the player rankings of getting a contract has now been offered one of those contracts that were given back and has turned it down and and to be honest I'm I have no issue with Jimmy Neesham turning that down he he got overlooked at it initially he's got to make a living for himself he went out there and secured work uh, for himself for the next 12 months so so all, all power to him and, and turning that down the problem I have here is now. Uh, New Zealand cricket, and I guess really world cricket, but I'm just going to focus this on New Zealand at the moment. Is really at a crossroads in terms of what they do with these three players coming up. They're going to they've they've got I'm not sure of the exact number of contracts that they have handed out for for the for the white ball cricketers, but they've got they're going to have a number of players who are not making the World Cup sides or not making the best eleven in that format, and who who are actually contracted to New Zealand cricket, and then they're bringing in. Bolt and Nisham when these contracted players are healthy are able to play cricket and have been rewarded with a with a contract I just think that it's kind of a bad look from from that perspective for New Zealand cricket but they also want to win games and you want to have your best players on the park so it's a real uh, quandary there for New Zealand cricket and the selectors to make um, my take on it and I'll, I'll throw this over to you next year because I think we'll differ on it is that I think that the first the contracted players should get the first bite of the cherry i think that if you want to play for your country you accept that contract and you um you you play your other other you know 2020 contracts or whatever it is around that uh international contract um which means that the likes of bolt colin de Grandholm, and jimmy Nishim wouldn't be selected in my in my white ball or red ball sides unless there were significant injuries Um, that's where I sit on it. I don't think that's where the general public or or others will sit on it, but, uh, yeah, over to you, Stu.
2: Yeah, I'm certainly not going to agree with you about Bolt. Uh, I mean, he's got to, he's got to be in those sides if, uh, if we want to, uh, you know, put our best foot forward. I think with the Nishan one is a bit more, um, of a discussion or, I don't think you can kind of categorize him as in those um you know turned down the contracts and all the things. It's more complicated for him because I think if you read his posts, he would have accepted the contract if they offered it to him at the start. He's then gone and put himself in um, as you said, he's gone and put himself out there in all the different t twenty leagues. I don't actually know the pure numbers, but it wouldn't surprise me if he actually works out if this works out better financially for him that um, you know he gets picked up in the the UAE League. He's, I think, he's almost as we are recording this. He's getting, uh, he's got his name in the in the hat for the South African T Twenty League. Uh, I don't think he got picked up in the BBL, did he? But you know, he's got opportunities to kind of recoup all of that money that that he would have got from a central contract, and and it gives him the option to to do what he wants. Um, De Grolhem, I don't think he was ever in the, with a sniff of of making those things. So I think you know he's just kind of. Made a decision. I I would be actually surprised if he makes the money back that he would have got from paying from just keeping his contract. But anyway, f- financial decisions aside, I think it probably um, it probably all is going to come down to how all of this stuff is going to change in the next couple of years, and and that might segue nicely into like what Mumbai is doing at the moment because I actually think realistically boards are going to have to be more flexible and I, don't, I I mean yes you can have a hard line as you suggested but then you're not going to have your best side on the park and I think probably how I would view it is if you turn down your contract you're just at risk of of this of the guys going well if it's 50 50 or or you know 45 55 towards a lean towards one sort of player then we're probably going to go with our contracted player who's around all the time and we can build and, and put our resources in. If you're at the level of Trent Bolt and you say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to put myself out there and um, you know, you guys can pick me if you want to, I'm going to be available. He's at risk as well, but if he keeps up his form, then I would still like to see us pick him. Whereas yeah, it's, you're not going to have that same option. I know people are going to say, well, yeah, what about Colin Monroe? What about other players who've sort of been in this situation before where, they hadn't got a contract, and New Zealand cricket did sort of move on from them, uh, rightly or wrongly. But I don't think any of them were ever in the same situation that, that Bolt is, where they're the number one bowler in the world, number one batter in the world, and they've gone and made a decision for their family. So, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is going to change around all of it for, for teams you know, around the world. We're going to see someone... I mean, Bully, maybe you want to run us through kind of the Mumbai Indians and, and kind of what's happening there. But, you know, T- Tim David's an example of someone who's going around the world, playing all these leagues, and now he's been brought into this Australian side off the back of what he's been doing in those leagues.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So definitely there's an opportunity for New Zealand cricket, particularly New Zealand, uh, not known as being, in, in from cricketing terms, a big, a big financially... Uh, strong nation from a cricketing point of view but New Zealanders from as part of their psyche as part of their um, as part of their their identity are, are known both internally and around the world as being quite an innovative nation so there's an opportunity here I think for New Zealand to think innovatively about how we contract our international players because the the draw card of national contract versus a sequence now of what will be domestic contracts that will become increasingly more linked as IPL franchises in particular but private equity firms in general will look to buy not only one T20 franchise but a series of them and we've already seen this with the Kolkata Knight Riders uh, buying the Trinbago Knight Riders and I think maybe one other franchise if I'm not mistaken across T20 leagues around the world the IPL owners I mean all six franchises and I can't remember which league it is it's either the South African League or the UAE League it might even be both All six franchises are owned by IPL owners. So we're seeing an emerging trend of increasingly linked T20 franchises being part of the same chain, if you like, of franchises, if I can borrow um, quick service restaurant parlance. So we're going to see more and more players move more seamlessly from one franchise to another as part of that chain of franchise owners. Um, So there's an opportunity here for New Zealand to be a little bit innovative. How do they create their contract structures so that Trent Bolt can go and play Two out of three of those marquee series, and still be available for a format for New Zealand. You know, we don't have to have a contract structure that only allows them, you know, to play red ball or white ball cricket. If they want to play one format, then how do you structure around that? If you want to be available for part of the year and say, "Well, I'm going to be available for ten months for New Zealand, except for the IPL window," how do you contract around that? And what does that mean from a tiering point of view? Lots of opportunity opportunity for New Zealand to be innovative and flexible here. What we're seeing is an emerging trend, and we've touched on it, Mumbai Indians now having uh, ownership for, uh, stakes in multiple franchises, m- making sure that they've got coaching pathways. So really smart move from Mumbai to establish a coaching pathway for Shane Bond, who's been a coach from a bowling point of view since 2015, I believe, at Mumbai, and will continue to be. But now he's got the opportunity to coach in, um, to borrow an NBA phrase, he's got a G League Coaching stick now, he's going to be able to coach in one franchise and then step up to the big leagues, if you like. And I'm and I'm, I'm not being disrespectful to any of those franchises or individuals, but he's now got a pathway, right? Players like Tim David or or emerging players will have a pathway now. Do I go and try out a young um, Sachin baby um, in um, in a in a South African league, or do I go and put Ajuna uh, Tendulka, Ajun Tendulka? Sorry, I'll start that again. Do I go and put Arjun Tendulkar in the South African League and groom him for success in the IPL in, in 12 months' time? So all these opportunities now, these pathways started to be teasing out not from domestic cricket to international cricket, but among T20 leagues around the world with this combined ownership structure. So fascinating to see. Um, But unfortunately, club versus country skewing even more heavily towards club from a contract point of view. So, you know, international um, boards and organisations are going to have to be even more savvy, even more flexible and provide maybe non-monetary benefits, non-monetary value associated with their contracting process to try and keep players associated with their system. System, rather than going and going, you know what? I'm going to do all my cricket development through the Mumbai organization because here's my pathway from domestic success through to IPL success and ultimately big money. And then, who knows, international su- uh, superstardom and fame. And
2: I, Raj, I just want to bring it back and, and kind of give you the opportunity to give me the the downsides, I guess, of the you know why why New Zealand it would be flexible and, and stuff. Because I, I guess when I look at it, um, I think about uh okay so trent bolt and de granholm have turned down their contracts it means that finn allen and blair tickner have now you know got new zealand contracts it means more money for them it means in their uh provincial sides then a couple more young cricketers get contracted uh in their provinces as well so i guess you know if those guys can make enough money or feel like they can make enough money in other you know without a contract then I, I think there there are benefits. You know, you sort of see it. Um, you know, I could see it uh, ages ago when uh, ND had kind of all of the uh, all of the New Zealand players, so they all had New Zealand domestic or international contracts, and ND was able to contract a whole bunch of younger players that that are now actually developed, and you know they were able to throw a contract at someone like Cam or Cam Fletcher, or give give someone like him an opportunity. Uh, a, actually think he went down to Canterbury for his contract but anyway um i, I guess what what do you think the actual downsides are is it, is it that you know you don't think we should invest in people who aren't investing in the country what, what are the the negatives from a um, from that point of view
1: just to clarify do you mean well, what are the one of the what are the negatives of so re-ask that question in another way to me
2: I, I guess i did... um like why do you think it's a bad thing uh, or why would you not pick Trent, like, why would you not want to pick Trent Bolt and things just because they've turned down their contract because they can make more money elsewhere?
1: I guess for me, uh, it comes back to uh, almost a pride issue and where where cricket stands from a hierarchical sense. At the moment, for me, international cricket is is the pinnacle, right? But I'll give you a, an interesting example, and you have to think this one through a little bit. But do you think that Mumbai cares more about losing? two or three games the Mumbai Indians Do you think that people of Mumbai care more about that than the Australians cared about losing to Zimbabwe last month or the month before like I think that it's interesting that this this sort of franchise cricket is becoming so big and getting such a following that it's actually usurping a lot of a lot of international cricket and I don't like that I think that I think that uh, international cricket is the pinnacle and it should be the pinnacle for for cricket going forward I have no problem with you know the likes of Trent Balk going out there and, and saying, look. I have done my time for New Zealand cricket, which he has. He's given us everything that we put into him as a, as a, as a young fella, bringing him through. Uh, he's going to go out there while he's still healthy, while he's still at the top of his game, uh, perhaps on the, the back end of that, but still at the top of his game. He's going to go out and make some money. I've got no problem with that. Uh, like you said, it allows other people to, to come in to, to get those contracts, but again if we keep picking him then those people that we've contracted for New Zealand don't get to play for New Zealand the people that get contracted for Canterbury or whoever don't get to play for Canterbury because the, the it all flows back down uh i think that no one player is bigger than the team uh and you know if if we, we should play the people that we contract to our national um, national team thank you
2: fair enough fair enough what well, well. uh Oh, oh, I I have nothing more to add. I I completely agree with you that uh, the, you know, the fact that club cricket is taking over from from the, from international cricket is a, a scary thing, and I think we've we've touched on that. Binksy, what what else have we have we got to cover off? Before, see if we can keep it under an hour.
0: Yeah, so I think that we're going to throw over to the New Zealand A tour of India. So definitely some success. Uh, we talked about uh, Northern districts there. So I think Joe Carter going pretty well um, in the game that's actually still going ahead um, at the moment. And then we've also got the White Ferns tour of the West Indies as well. So Lippi, I don't know if you want to jump back in and give us a quick, yeah, whistle stop tour of those two.
2: Yeah. Look, um, and it, and it will be pretty quick. I think the New Zealand New Zealand A stuff. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't find any video footage of it. Uh, I, yeah, have have tried around. I've kind of searched the the Reddit uh, cricket boards and and couldn't really find anything. Uh, I saw a few, uh, even some Indian uh, cricket followers saying that they couldn't find any footage of it either. So yeah, a bit of a shame there. Um, but absolutely spot on and, and highlighting Joe Carter because. Uh, He's put a massive foot forward in terms of uh, you know someone that I suppose we've we talked about in the Test summer as someone like Will Young who's who's been struggling a bit. There is someone like Henry Nichols, who's been struggling a bit, and uh, our next tour is is to the subcontinent. Our next Test tour is in Pakistan. So uh, the fact that Carter's gone over there, I, I think I saw some stat uh, someone put up the other day to to get two Tests. Two test hunt two test hundreds in India it's only been done a very few times for New Zealand I know these are not uh, official tests they were labeled as unofficial tests but it's still a, an an excellent effort for Carter who sort of had a has been kind of around the the New Zealand a scene for for a little while he's had sort of good seasons and mixed seasons his first class average is still only 34 I think from from memory something around there 34 35 so it's not like he's been really, really banging the door down, but he's someone that, if he then goes on now and, and has a really good start to the Plunkett Shield season, could put himself in the mix for for that Pakistan Test Tour. So certainly someone to watch. Mark Chapman is another one yes, who scored I'm a few sorry, runs. Stu,
1: just, just to come over the top, that last 100 as well was against a pretty good... Uh, a lineup, I think, Shadul Takul was there and Raul Chahar. So they had some international experience as well. Um, but, yeah, you know how we were talking about games finishing within three days? They didn't get the memo over there. There were some massive scores and massive innings, over 120, 140 overs bowled by each team. But, um, yeah, sorry, back to you on Chappie.
2: Oh, no, uh, yeah, I mean, you're spot on there with uh, with those uh, those games. I mean, for, yeah, four-day games. And, uh, and most of them went the distance. New Zealand kind of, uh, unfortunately, one of the middle game was sort of delayed or it was disrupted a lot with rain. Uh, so we didn't quite get to see. we still got a bit of um, ODI stuff left in that tour. So we're still going to get a little bit of uh, of work for the for the New Zealand side. But yeah, unfortunately, I mean, you, you mentioned the strength of that Indian side. We've had um, Patidar and Gaikwad and things. They've been cashing in um, on the Indian front. But yeah i would have loved to kind of see some footage of how joe walker has gone with with the ball and and how matt fisher has gone with the ball took four wickets in that in that first innings of that last test but yeah good to see and, and chapman i guess i was only going to mention him really because the t20 side probably by the time you listen to this uh, podcast everyone is going to have been announced for new zealand and, and i think he's he's someone who was in our last t20 world cup s- squad has been on the outer of, of these tours, did play on, on one of the tours uh, on our you know six-month-long uh, European holiday. Uh, but, yeah, the, the he's sort of someone who maybe can just sneak in if New Zealand go for... Uh, if they don't go for a backup keeper is sort of the only way I think that he could kind of sneak in ahead of a, a, a Dane Cleaver or someone like that. But, yeah, good to, good to kind of see him still in the mix. And I think I said the other day on, on an earlier podcast every, every time he's kind of given an opportunity for New Zealand recently he's kind of putting his hand up and saying hey look I'm still around I'm, I'm a player that can can participate in in a lot of different formats for New Zealand so yeah we'll see what happens going forward and and uh, Binksy you mentioned the White Ferns there's not really a lot to add on that I think the Tropical Cyclone uh, postponed the the first ODI in that series they're over in in the West Indies uh, so we've got three or we've got we've uh, got uh, ODIs and T20s coming up in that series. Really, I guess, just looking forward to to seeing what New Zealand can do, trying to build on uh, on the, that Commonwealth Games bronze medal and um, and you know this new look side and, and building into, I guess, the the tournaments that are that are coming up in the next year or so.
0: Awesome, Lippy. Great wrap up on. The New Zealand game and interesting, I thought to see Joe Carter at the top of the order um, in that Test match as well. But normally about I think three or four for ND. So maybe sort of tipping the selectors a little bit of a nod that if there are any problems at the the top of the um, the order, um, we talked about Will Young's stock potentially over the course of this English summer. Um, maybe get down to the bookies with your uh, yeah with your Cameron Green stock as well there on. Uh, on Joe Carter. But look, that does probably just about wrap up this episode of the Top Order podcast. If you do want your cricketing fix get yourself onto Quick Info. Um, that South African League auction um, going ahead today. The six Indian franchise owners doubling down with some investment in the South African T20 League. You'll see Jimmy Neesham as one of the top ranked um, players, um, as well as Odin. Um, and I think Jaden Seals as well in the top bracket from a monetary perspective. So um, dip into that little auction. But we'll be back next week with more this week in cricket and, of course, Cricketing Hall of Fame um, coming up um, as well. Um, but for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here at the top of the podcast. We'll see you very, very soon.
3: Good night.